from McMinnville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that doesn't know what it is, but knows it's there. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Dark Energy. Hey, Chad. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you doing? Doing okay. By the time this podcast sees the light of day, my youngest daughter, who is two, will have had COVID shot number two. Wow. So she'll be, we'll all be fully vaxxed up. So So we're ready to just start going out and breathing in strangers' faces again. (laughs) So anyway, what's on your mind, Mike? Well, recently, the James Webb Space Telescope has been sending out all these great images of things. And in the news a lot, people have been talking about this thing called dark energy. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten a few requests to, to explain what are they talking about? So I thought I'd do that today. Regarding dark energy. Regarding dark energy specifically, yeah. yeah. Hopefully people will walk away from this knowing at least what astronomers mean when they say those words. Dark and energy? Dark energy, yeah. Okay. I mean, they go together. I think people, especially physicists, could define each of those words separately. Okay. Sort of like hot and dog, and hot dog is a separate thing? Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. Are, Really? Is it just, is it like that? So dark energy is a separate thing from dark and energy? Yes. Oh my God. My brain just broke just a little bit. Well, put it back together because giddy up, we're going. All right. <laughs> so before we, we get into all that, I want to start with some intuition uh-huh. about gravity. Okay. So imagine I throw a baseball up in the air. Uh-huh. Let's think about what's happening as soon as I let go of the ball. So I've given it all the energy that I'm going to give it. I throw it up in the air. What does it start doing? Well, it starts slowing down immediately, Yeah. right? And there's a little bit of friction with the air, but the vast majority of that slowdown is due to the gravity that it's experiencing from the Earth. Yeah, so gravity is constantly tugging on it. Uh And so since the ball is originally going upward, the gravity is going to tug on it and make it slow down. And eventually, it'll make it turn around and accelerate back down towards the earth right now if i were to throw it higher Uh start out going faster when it leaves my hand it's going to go up higher right but it's still going to slow down and slow down and eventually turn around and fall back down to earth Mm -hmm. you could imagine if i threw it hard enough that it could actually leave Earth's pole entirely. Yeah, you'd have to throw it really, really hard. Yeah, there's no practical way for me to throw something or launch something just straight from the earth and have it leave gravity. Like the speed that it would have to start out with would be way too much for that to happen. Mm -hmm. But even as it's going out, it would be slowing down and slowing down and slowing down Mm -hmm. as it's leaving. You know, it would never actually turn around and stop and come back, but it would still be slowing down on the way. Okay. And so that's the intuition that I wanted to build up here. If we have nothing else going on, gravity will keep pulling on something and making everything just kind of slow down along the way. Okay. And so in order to get satellites and space stations and things like that, though, into orbit, then to do that, it seems like we're not just throwing stuff. We're actually putting some sort of controlled explosion beneath them. That's a good distinction. Let's make that let's make that clear. So the difference between, say, what I'm saying, we're throwing a rock or something like that. Mm-hmm. And launching a rocket is that actually the the rocket itself is constantly throwing more things out behind it. And I so see. it's not just that it has a single explosion, because that mm-hmm. would still be if it, if we just had one explosion and it tried to launch things off, all of the debris or whatever would still fall right back down to Earth eventually. Mm-hmm. In order to actually leave, the rocket is actually having a controlled explosion. But the result of that is it's pushing a lot of stuff back behind it. Mm-hmm. And by pushing things behind it, it's essentially propelling itself forward. Mm-hmm. And so a rocket is a very different thing from where I'm saying I'm just throwing a rock or something like that, because a rocket has an extra energy input into it. Okay. I'm, I'm continuously 
throwing more and more stuff behind it to continuously allow it to accelerate. But it could okay. never accelerate on its own. Okay. The only way that it will accelerate is by having some extra source of energy to push it and make it accelerate outward. Okay. And so f- to overcome gravity, to have two things with mass persistently push away from each other takes an energy of some sort. Right. Okay. And so when we're thinking about gravitational things, we're always thinking about how they're being attracted to each other. Okay. And so let's put that aside. Let's keep that in our minds that that's the intuition. Anytime you have gravity, things are attractive, but there's Mm -hmm. nothing there to push things away. And so you would always expect if two objects are separating from each other, at the very least, they're going to be slowing down with their escape. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now let's go on a totally different journey. (laughs) Okay. So the universe itself is expanding. And expanding in all of the directions it can whiz. Sorry, that's a Monty Python reference. Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving, Uh, revolving at 900 miles an hour. So the universe is expanding. That was not always known, right? That was not always known. It Actually, back about 100 years ago, it was assumed that everything was static, actually. Mm, That it was just out there, had always been that way, would always be that way. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like the Earth is orbiting around the sun. Mm -hmm. So we've got sort of a static distance from the sun. The sun is orbiting around something in the the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way that's helping to power that. We have a handful of galaxies that are fairly close to us. Some of them seem to be attracted to the Milky Way, and maybe there will be some collision happening many, many billions of years from now. But it was assumed that everything else was just kind of where it was. You couldn't see necessarily that they were orbiting other things, but it was just kind of assumed that everything was static. And then uh, this guy, Edwin Hubble, did some work. And you probably recognize the name Hubble based on that space telescope, which is named after him Uh in honor of him. It's not because he built a telescope. It was just (laughs) in honor of him. And what he did was he actually measured and found that all these galaxies are actually moving away from us in every single direction. And how did he do that? Well, so you need like two pieces of information. First of all, you have to know the speed of all the galaxies and you have to know how far away they are. Okay. So to know the speed of things, the relative speed of things can usually be found by something called the Doppler effect. Oh, we've talked about the Doppler effect. Okay. All right. So tell me about the Doppler effect. Well, I think that it is the idea that when something travels as a wave, whether it's a photon or a sound wave, mm-hmm. if the observer and the source of that wave are moving either towards or away from each other, it mm-hmm. can either compress or extend the wavelength. Is that right? Yeah. And so from the observer's point of view, that changes the frequency. Yes. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it? so is that, is instance, that like the solid B, B plus answer? Yeah, that's good. And so, you know, if we're talking about, say, sound, uh-huh. that means like the pitch is going to be a higher pitch if something is coming towards you or it's a lower pitch if it's going away. Uh-huh. So like, you know, if you're a big NASCAR or Formula One fan or something like that, you hear these cars whipping by it's going to go right it's a higher pitch when it's coming towards you and then it dips down to a lower pitch once it passes and it's going back away light does the same thing if i had a green light bulb let's say Uh and i threw it at you going fast enough and fast enough means very close to the speed of light um (laughs) then the green light bulb might start looking if it's coming towards you it might start looking more bluish to you Uh uh-huh okay and if it's coming away from you it would tend to look a little more reddish Okay. And so astronomers use that description for all the Doppler effect for all light, regardless of the wavelength. Basically saying if it's red shifted, that means it's going away. If it's blue shifted, it means it's coming towards you. Having a shift like that tells you that it's moving to you or away from you. But also Mm -hmm. how much of that shift happens depends on how fast it's moving away. Right. Or towards you. Or towards you. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. And so we can look at a star and all stars have, for instance, all stars have hydrogen in them. Mm-hmm. And so they all have these very specific lines in them of color that hydrogen has a, a fingerprint of light that it puts out. Mm-hmm. And so we can look for those lines, for instance, and we can see that in this one galaxy, all those lines are shifted a little bit, which means that they're all moving away from us at the same speed. But this other galaxy over there, they've shifted a different amount. And so that must be moving at different speed. I see. Okay. And so let me, let me just getting back to this difference between the idea of a steady state kind of universe versus one that is expanding. Mm-hmm. If it were the case that we were living in a steady state universe, then wouldn't on average, you would expect like some galaxies would be a little bit more red shifted and other galaxies would be a little bit more blue shifted, but sort of on average, it would kind of all cancel each other out. Well, I, I mean, know. an ideal steady state, nothing would be shifted at all. Okay. So I was just thinking like stuff is still sort of moving with respect to each other a little bit, sort of like yeah. billiard balls on a billiard table, but the billiard tables staying the same size. Yeah, I could see that. And it's true, like with our solar system or our moon or anything like that, sometimes the moon is a little bit closer, sometimes it's a little farther away mm-hmm. just because of its orbit. So yeah, you might expect like, maybe in time it might change. Uh huh. So yeah, that's true too. Okay, but that's not what was observed. No, Hubble found everything was redshifted and it turns out things that were farther away were redshifted more than things that were closer to us. And so that suggests that things that are farther away are moving faster Yeah, because their wavelength has been stretched out even more. Mm-hmm. Now that always gets people because then you start thinking like, well, wait a second, how... So in every direction, things are moving away. Yeah. And if I look up, they're all moving away. If I look down, they're all moving away. If I look left or right, they're all moving away. Does that mean we're at the center of the universe? <laughs> Right. If everything is moving away from us, that seems uh-huh. that's not exactly what's going on here. It, it turns out that I like to think about, for instance, fireworks, mm-hmm. that if you see fireworks up in the air, you can kind of track. I mean, you see the whole thing, so you can kind of trace it back to the middle of where the explosion actually happened. Right. But mm-hmm. but imagine you were sitting on one of those sparks. The ones that are out farther from you are obviously traveling faster than you. And so you would okay. see them moving away. But the ones that are inside of your location, you're moving faster than they are. And so the only data we have is that they're redshifted, which means relatively speaking, we're getting farther apart. So it it could be the case that we're getting farther apart from say these guys and these other guys are getting farther apart from us. Right. We don't know that we can't know the difference between those two. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I like to say the fireworks because that actually was the first piece of evidence that led to something called the Big Bang, a theory mm-hmm. that said, oh, well, how could we explain all this? What if there was a big explosion and, and it caused everything to separate out? Mm-hmm. Since then, actually, we have a lot more evidence for that as well. So it's not just that. We also have evidence of there is some residual light from that first explosion. There is something called cosmic background radiation, which okay. is the residue, basically, from that first initial explosion. Hmm. And so it's actually kind of cool. You can look out into the universe where there are no stars and there's still a little bit of light coming from every direction. Hmm. It's not in the visible spectrum, so we can't see it, but we can have microwave detectors that do see it. Okay. And And microwaves are like way stretched out. Right. Okay. And so these are from the very beginning of time. And so it's as if they all got stretched out. And so they're very long wavelengths. Yeah. And actually, that was kind of cool. The people who discovered it were working at Bell Labs uh-huh. and they were trying to make microwave detector. And they thought, oh, this is a good frequency because we know that nobody is making this right now. You know, there are no t- <laughs> television stations with this. There's nothing. And so then they actually pointed it out to the sky. They're like, well, let's just test it. Let's see what the background noise is. Uh-huh. And they're like, oh, crap. We must have pointed it just in the wrong spot. OK, let's point it over here. 
Uh-huh. And, and so they actually wrote about how they did all these tests. They thought maybe they were getting some extra noise from someplace. And it turns out that a bunch of pigeons kept roosting in there and they kept removing all of this, as they called it, white dielectric material <laughs> left behind by the <laughs> pigeons and so forth. Uh, but they they just kept finding the same background noise everywhere. Uh-huh. And then they started talking to some more people and, and lo and behold, they got a Nobel Prize for it. So anyway, so cosmic background radiation, uh-huh. you can imagine a big explosion. That's the burst of light right at the moment. And then we see that evidence. We literally yeah. can see it, which is kind of cool. And so okay. nowadays we're totally cool with that. We match up perfectly with the Big Bang idea. All right. And that all came initially from Hubble's data. When was Hubble scientifically active? The, the scientists, not the telescope? I would say like the 1920s or 30s. Okay. So this is like ideas that have been around for a good hundred years. Yeah. Okay. All but right. we actually got away a little bit from Hubble's measurement because we talked about how we did the Doppler effect to measure the redshift. But the other piece of that is that you have to know how far away things are. Ah. And so the way that they did that was by using something called the inverse square law. Okay. And the name actually explains exactly what it is, but it's basically, imagine like I throw a pebble in a lake, right? And you see yep. these ripples yep. from the splash. Think- it makes the circles that get bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay. Ripples. Well, the, the diameter of the circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The diameter is getting bigger. Bigger, but the height of the individual wave that that ripple is creating is actually getting shorter as it, as it spreads out bigger and bigger. Okay. And is that because that same amount of energy is being spread over a larger, I guess, what area? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly how I would describe it. Oh, that initially this energy is all concentrated there, but then it it's gradually spreading out across the entire circumference of that circle. Okay. And so light does the same thing, except in three dimensions. Uh-huh. Sure. I mean, but you also probably have experienced this as well, right? If you have a candle way across the other side of the room, it's going to look dimmer than if it's right next to you. Mm-hmm. And okay. so we can use that actually, though, to figure out how far away objects are, as long as we know how much light they're putting out. So is there sort of like an average star output or do you know something else about how bright a star is based on some other kind of information that you're getting from that star well it it's tricky because bigger stars put out more light than smaller Uh stars in general and so there's a lot of problems with that approach okay you know and especially since we're talking about things that are going to be redshifted like you could kind of figure out based on the temperature of the star you might say oh well i know this star is hotter and so it should have this curve look like this, but then if it's moving away, then it's red shifted. So then that totally messes up what it looks like. Hmm. But so what Hubble did was he actually used, and I, I'm going to say the term and, and we're not going to really explain it, but something called a Cepheid variable star, which, <laughs> okay. which is a star that varies its brightness. Oh, and there's a lot of details for why this works, but basically it gets brighter and dimmer over a matter of typically days or weeks. Oh, I've never heard of a star that does that. Huh. That was exactly in- how bright and dim it gets. The frequency at which it's getting brighter and dimmer is related to how bright it actually is or how luminous it, it actually is. Okay. And All so right. anyway, that's what you would call a standard candle because we can look at that. We know exactly how much light it's putting out. And then you can uh, know how far away it is based on how much light it appears to be putting out from our perspective. Okay. Right, because if we're farther away, then it's going to be dimmer. If we're closer, it'll be brighter. So Hubble did that. But it turns out, in order to do that that measurement, you have to be able to see like individual stars in a galaxy. Because these are individual stars that are doing that. Like uh-huh. You can't trust all the stars in general. That's too confusing, too much going on. So you'd have to find one of these weird stars that gets brighter and dimmer and use that as your standard candle. Mm-hmm. So when he did that, he was only able to see out to about 120 million light years away. 
which is not a terribly far distance. And so are we we talking stars still within the Milky Way? Within no, no, our no. These are separate are galaxies. Separate. You, so, so it's far enough away, but the resolution was still good enough that you could see individual stars in other galaxies. Yes. Okay. Now, the issue there, though, is that 120 million light years, that's not all that far away. Seems far, but okay. I'll it does seem your... far. <laughs> well, but I mean, 120 million light years, that is you know, maybe a hundred different galaxies and so forth, which is yes, helpful, but that's not looking too terribly far back. There are about a hundred galaxies within 120 million light years of us. Is that what you're saying? Something like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. But remember that the universe itself extends out about 14 billion light years away in every direction. Okay. So 120 million. Yeah. That sounds like a lot, but that's nothing compared to 14 billion right? That's yeah, that's like 1%. Yeah. Okay. So Hubble's data was very helpful. But you know, it definitely showed that the universe is expanding. But at that scale, everything looked like a straight line. Like if you plotted distance versus speed at which it's going away, it just it fit a straight line pretty well. And, and what I mean by that is like, for instance, here on Earth, if you look across a football field, it mm-hmm. looks flat, right? Mm hmm. But if you're able to to get up a little bit higher and look a really long distance, then you can start seeing the curvature of the Earth. Uh But in a short enough distance, everything looks like a straight line here on Earth. You have to get a little bit farther away or look a little bit farther a distance in order to see curvature. Right. Okay. And so that straight line part, maybe that's not really a straight line. And we're going to come back to that here in a little bit. Okay. But that led everybody to this idea of the Big Bang. And that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So now we have a lot of evidence. We know how the universe began, or at least we know the steps that happened once the universe began. And now then fun to think about, well, how will it end then? Right. Right. So So to think through how the universe will end, let's think back to what we talked about at the very top of the show about throwing a baseball up, right? uh Except in this case, we had the Big Bang happened about 14 billion years ago, and that triggered everything else to start, right? Okay. So- Based on our intuition on gravity, we should expect then that perhaps the universe is going to expand out and eventually all the matter, everything will just eventually stop, turn around and come back and crunch in on itself again. Right. Because that initial explosion is sort of analogous to your arm throwing the ball up. Yep. But then if there's not something there continuing to provide energy, then gravity will take over and pull things back together. Yeah. And so then the idea would be that if there's enough mass for this to happen, then the universe would expand outward and then eventually everything would turn around and come back in on itself. Mm-hmm. Astronomers have called this idea, you know, we started out with the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. So this would result in the big crunch is what they call it. Okay. Because they, they get a little slap. Ha- they work mostly at night and they get a little <laughs> slap happy. But it really depends on how much mass there is, right? Because you could also imagine if there's not a whole lot of stuff in the universe, then there's nothing to like pull it back together. Okay. And so this would be like, if I could really throw a rock far enough and escape the Earth's gravity, it would still be slowing down as it's going out, but it would continue going out forever. Okay. Things would just sort of keep drifting away, but perhaps increasingly slow. Yeah, they, they would be slowing down and slowing down, but they would never slow down and turn around and come back. Okay. The limit of this would be like, you know, if... Sometimes in cartoons and stuff, you'll see people, they're about to fall off a cliff, but they're like balanced just perfectly. And then, you know, a feather or something lands in the <laughs> wrong spot and then they, they fall, right? Uh-huh. So the, the teeter point there would be where you would go out to infinity and then just stop 
and that uh-huh. would be it. But if you had a little bit more mass, everything would come back together for the big uh-huh. crunch. Uh-huh. And if you had a little bit less mass than that, it would just continue expanding out forever. Got it. And in that case, every star would eventually burn through its fuel. Everything would eventually just die. And you'd have a heat death of the entire universe. Just everything would just kind of stop. Okay. And so that's what they call the big chill. And so it's actually helpful to look at the Hubble data in this mindset because that's like looking back in time, right? I mean, we're mm-hmm. looking farther and farther out in the universe. It's as if we're looking back in time when we're doing that. And so we can kind of see how fast things have been moving throughout time. Mm-hmm. And you know, we could actually take all the Hubble's data and extend a straight line back from that. And that would give us basically the age of the universe from that information. Okay, yeah. Actually, if we do that, we can actually find out that the age of the universe would be about 14 billion years. Hmm. And I've already said that we know it's like, it's about that, right? (laughs) So so that actually lines up pretty nicely. However, that's the straight line behavior would only happen if there was no mass at all, right? If there was any mass whatsoever, it would be slowing down over time. So it would not be a straight line. It would bend down a little bit. Okay. And and in fact, if, if there was enough mass there, then it would not only bend down, but it would be sort of like a parabola shape, right? It would eventually turn around and, and okay. crunch back down. And so you can make it. Graph- Hold on. Okay. I think I just, so by bend down, you're, you're thinking of like, if we were looking at a graph, initially we would have maybe like our line going up and to the right, like at a 45 degree angle. Mm-hmm. And by bend down, you're meaning that that sort of levels off. Well, if there's enough mass, it would not just level off. It would completely come back down to zero at some point. Right. But the one where you were talking about how um, if there's just the right amount of mass so that it did neither of those two things, it would that's the leveling on, off yeah. one. Right. And so we've got the one where the, the line keeps going up and up onward forever. We've got the one where it, it bends down and actually starts coming back down again. Mm-hmm. That's the big crunch. Yep. But then the sort of just right in the middle, it levels off. Okay. Yep. All yeah. right. And so from that, you can, first of all, you can figure out the age of the universe. Okay. But you can also make predictions on what would happen in the future. Okay. Now, again, given our data from Hubble's redshift, it only looks like a straight line. But then again, we're not looking far enough back. Like it may be curved. We just don't know what that is. So we don't have a sense of which of those three graphs is most correct? Uh, Within the story, as I'm telling it so far. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. So then people started looking back at the cosmic background radiation. Uh-huh. And they started looking at that more carefully because it, it's mostly uniform, but there are small fluctuations there. And so they've mm-hmm. actually sent out several satellites and they all mapped out what the background radiation looked like across the entire universe in fantastic detail. And they found that this signature, the CBR, is incredibly uniform in every direction, just small fluctuations here and there. Mm. To be that uniform actually suggests that the Big Bang really was just a single event. Okay. Right. I mean, you could imagine like if I had let's say two firecrackers going off, one may have just been a little bit hotter than the other. And so they would be very different temperatures if we measured them using this, right? Right, right. But for everything to be all the same temperature, but that uniformity suggests that it really, everything really was packed down into one single spot at one time. Mm -hmm. It also tells us the fluctuations that do exist give us some sense of the density of mass and energy in the early universe. Okay. Now, what that means is that we can look at that and figure out like how much mass is there? We can actually see like if there was a whole lot of mass, we'd have a lot of tiny little fluctuations. If there was not a lot of mass, it would be even smoother than what we see. Hmm. So we're somewhat in between those two extremes. Hmm. And so astronomers were looking at that data thinking, okay, well, look, if we have a whole lot of fluctuations, that means we have a lot of mass. 
that means we'll have a big crunch. Mm. If it's very, very smooth, then that means there's not a lot of mass. That means we'd have the big chill. Got it. Okay. What's interesting is that if you look at that data, it suggests that we're right around the transition point. We are waiting for that feather to <laughs> knock us over so, the ledge, basically. So like right now? Yeah. Okay. Like, but I mean, in general, like we're right on the teeter of that. Uh-huh. And so that didn't give us a whole lot of help with trying to narrow all this down. But one issue with that is that if you trace that line backwards, where it's basically flat is what they call it. It tells us that we're right on that transition point. And if you trace that back to how old the universe should be, then that would suggest it should be about 10 billion years old if we're really right at that transition there mm. to be as big as we are now. So there's some contradictions there between different data sets that we have. Okay. But 10 billion is way too young. Yeah, that's only two thirds of the actual. Yeah. I mean, we, okay. we know we have, you know, our solar system is at least four and a half billion years old. We can do various tests of different stars. And we know that there are different various stars that are at least 12 billion years old. Mm -hmm. So we know, we know that 10 billion is too short. We know okay. it has to be bigger than that. Okay. So something's amiss. Yeah. And so then about 20 years ago, two different experimental groups started searching for a different answer. They decided to extend Hubble's data. And they did this very cool experiment. So first of all, it was Brian Schmidt and his postdoc, Reese, and Saul Perlmutter in a different group. Hmm. And the reason I'm bringing up all three of these names is that the three of them shared the Nobel Prize for this discovery that they made hmm. for extending out the Hubble data. Okay. So remember, the, the limitation that Hubble had was that he could not distinguish individual stars in distant galaxies. Mm -hmm. So he, he didn't have the standard candle that he could compare how bright it is to whatever. However, there are some events called supernova are when a star explodes. Uh -huh. And those are so bright that you can actually see them separate from the rest of the galaxy. I see. So they used a very specific type of supernova. But to do this measurement, they knew exactly how luminous this type of supernova should be. And so by looking at finding those, they were able to extend out the Hubble data much, much further than what he could ever dream to do. Okay. In fact, quick look at their data suggests that they could actually see out to about 10 billion light years away. Hmm. So that should definitively tell us which of these lines we should be sitting on. That when we're so short, it still looks kind of like a straight line, but we should be able to see at what point does it start curving downward. And then that would tell us the age of the universe. That would tell us how much mass is there. That would answer all of the questions that we would have. Okay. And so that's what they did. Both of these groups independently went into it looking for at what point do the Hubble type data, at what point do these start curving downward to show how much mass there is in the universe? Mm -hmm. What they found instead was that it was curving upward. In the opposite direction. In the opposite direction, yeah. Huh. So remember, we're talking about we threw a baseball up and it eventually came back down. Right. Because there were no other forces involved whatsoever. And, and so that's what they were expecting. That would be the downward curve would be that, yes, even if it doesn't come back to us, it's at least slowing down. Uh -huh. The fact that it curved the other way means that it's accelerating outward. So this would be like throwing the baseball up and it just keeps going up faster and faster. Yeah. Huh. And that, that is completely mind-blowing. Yeah. And threw all of physics out for a loop. And so sticking with the analogy that we opened at the top of the show, this would be more similar to the situation of a rocket, right? Yeah. So there's there's something there that's providing some a push. There has to be some extra source of energy that's okay. providing this extra push. At the present, we have no idea what that 
energy source is. <laughs> but it's been given the name of uh -huh. dark energy. So that's dark energy. So that is dark energy. <laughs> You're welcome. There we are. <laughs> so. I know it's not very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically, so, oh, we found this thing. What is it? I, I don't know. I gave it a name, though. So, yeah. So it's like so far, it's the name we give to the thing that accounts for that result. Well, remember that astronomers like to reuse certain names. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, we talked about how there was the Big Bang and then they're like, oh, we'll call this the Big Crunch and the Big Chill. And uh -huh. uh, they sort of did the same thing with naming this is that there's another type of thing which we have done a show about before called dark matter. Yeah. Which is that we know even just in the Milky Way galaxy that there's mass that we cannot see just mm -hmm. based on gravitationally how things are behaving. There has to be some extra mass someplace, but we we can't see it. You know, maybe maybe it's a bunch of black holes or maybe it's something exotic that we don't really know about yet. But there's something out there that's causing more gravity in the Milky Way galaxy that we were not expecting. Mm -hmm. In that case, it makes sense to call it dark matter because matter is what has mass. And mm -hmm. it being dark means that it's not giving off light. Right. So that was a reasonable name. And having this extra energy source and they're like, well, we'll just call it dark energy because okay. we don't know what that is either. OK, but the so, fact that they share the the word dark doesn't necessarily mean that they are linked to each other in some special way. Not necessarily. No. OK, there is a lot of work being done right now trying to calculate like how much dark matter is there and how much dark energy is there. And, and so people are working on both of those directions simultaneously. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, they're very different from each other. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting to think about that. The majority of the universe is made up of, it's estimated right now, about 70% of all of the universe is made up of this dark energy. and of dark energy. Of dark energy, yes. This thing that we know nothing about. And approximately 30% is made up of this dark matter that we don't know what it is. <laughs> okay. And, and so, so about we're just 1% like left. <laughs> the trace. Everything we can see in the trace entire materials. universe. Yeah. So dark in this case sort of means like our understanding of it is obscured. Yeah. Doesn't literally mean like in a room with the lights turned out. Right. Okay. That's not to say that people are not working on this. Sure. But it is important to realize that the final arbiter of all science is experiment, hmm. as Richard Feynman famously said. Mm -hmm. And so we have, there are a bunch of theorists coming up with ideas, but until they come up with a provable idea mm -hmm. that experiment could definitively show one way or another, then they're good ideas right now, but we can't distinguish between them. I see. So the cool part about this is that we're at a new understanding of things that we know that there's something cool going on. We just don't know how to explain it just yet. Yeah. People, hopefully 50 years from now, will look back and be like, geez, those crisscrossing science guys, they... <laughs> Why do they make it so hard? Like, this is so obvious. <laughs> right, right. So is the James Webb Space Telescope likely to provide some sort of data that would help resolve this? So James Webb is able to see farther than any telescope we've ever had, uh -huh. ever. And so, and so maybe we could extend the work by Schmidt and Perlmutter and Reese to go even farther out. You know, mm -hmm. maybe we could use this to study how those are propagating outward. Um, so that would give us a sense of, okay, these new, even further away galaxies are moving at an even faster speed that comports with this Schmidt et al. model. But then it seems to me that the explanation for that, though, is still, well, that's dark energy for you. True. So what we need is more data. And that's certainly something that Webb should be able to provide us. So okay. 
Well, as soon as they get that sussed out, we should come back and talk about it again. Yes. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rody Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have questions about the universe, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening. 